Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Dr. Haddon Robinson, whom I had the privilege of studying under for years, uh, told this story about a family during the Great Depression of the 1930s. This family who lived in the Midwest were so poor they had to struggle just to put food on the table every day. And they had no money for luxuries at all. And one day, posters all over town were placed talking about a circus coming to town. And the little 10-year-old boy saw that poster, his eyes grew big as saucers, and said, wow, I want to go to that and see that. Admission, $1, which was a lot of money during the Great Depression, don't you think? So he went home and told his folks, I want to go to the circus. And his dad said, well, son, you have to earn that $1 to buy your own ticket. And so the little boy worked hard and feverishly doing all kinds of odd jobs and collecting those that dollar penny by penny, nickel by nickel, until he could buy the ticket. And then the circus came to town. This magnificent parade down Main Street. The little boy stood on the curb and was just amazed to see the color and hear the sounds and watch the animals go by. And, and then a, a clown came over, danced to him, and the little boy was, and he gave the clown his ticket. And he watched the rest of the parade go by. He went home to tell his dad and mom, I saw the most wonderful things. And the father said, I need to talk to you for just a moment. And he took the little boy aside and hugged him and said, son, you only saw the parade. You didn't see the circus. And I believe that's a parable of Christmas. We get so involved in all of the things and fluff and toys and gifts and sharing and family that we are content with the circus, with the parade, and never see the real main event. And as we look at Matthew chapter, Luke chapter 1, we read, as the Rivas family read for us, about that true event that changes our lives. So as we look at the Bible in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we read this, that there are, I see three or two things we need to do in response to this passage. The first one is, and your message notes talks about that, the first active faith response we can have from this passage is to uh, trust in God's purposes for Jesus' birth. And this passage is all about God's purposes for Jesus' birth. And purpose number one is that He came to save you. We read, when the angel came and made this announcement, she said, you know, the angel said, you are highly favored. God has blessed you, and you shall be with child. And she was so confused, not confused, but she was amazed at what was going on. I'm having trouble finding Luke. Here we go. And so consider this case of this Jewish young girl, God-fearing, evidently, virtuous, engaged to be married to an older man, no doubt full of cherished dreams of what this future life would be like and this year of waiting before she was actually betrothed to her husband. And she was totally surprised by this angel Gabriel. He told her that she would become pregnant outside of wedlock. What must have gone through her mind? 
who will believe me that an angel came to me, right? What will my parents say when they find out I'm pregnant? And what will Joseph do? Will he divorce me or shame me? Or uh, what will my friends think? Will they shun me? Will I be laughed at? I could possibly be stoned to death for adultery. Let's look closer at God's revelation to Mary in verses 26 to 28. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, angelic visitations in the Bible were so rare. In fact, I've counted only 17 times that angels actually came and visited someone. People like Abraham and Moses and, and Lot and, and Elijah and Isaiah and, and Daniel. It had been 500 years since the last time an angel visited Israel. 500 years, twice the age of our country. There was no angelic visitation. And now, this very angel who had visited Daniel appeared to Zechariah and told him about their son to be born, John, who was the Baptist. And now, Gabriel appears six months later, after Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and announces this great revelation. Gabriel's visit was... Uh, to a young woman was unknown in those days. In fact, there's only two other times in the Bible that an angel visited a woman. That would be Hagar, and also it would be Samson's mother. And now this young girl receives a visit from the mighty Gabriel. And so Gabriel wasn't kidding when she says, greetings, you're highly favored, the Lord is with you. God told Moses, I'll be with you. God told Joshua, I'll be with you. God told Gideon, I'll be with you. And now he tells this young lady, I will be with you. Understandably, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. You're talking to me? Who am I? I'm, I'm just a woman. Is this really happening? Am I going to die? Will I be struck mute like Zechariah? What's going on here? In verse 30, we read, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. The word favor is grace, undeserved blessing. Nothing she could have earned it with but favor. You'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Simply stated, the angel tells her that this favor results in her being a virgin, will have a little boy, and his name will be Jesus. I want to call your attention to the name Jesus. And I'm putting up on the, as well, the screen here. The word Jesus is the Hebrew word for Joshua. And Moses named him Joshua by adding a phrase in front of it, Yehu. And it means literally the Lord, Yahweh, is salvation. Yahweh is that word that was pronounced only once a year by the, by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. If you use this word, take his name in vain, you could be killed for this. And Moses named Joshua, Yehu Joshua, as the Lord is salvation. What a perfect name for the Savior. Yahweh is salvation. It expresses the purpose 
of Jesus' coming. Now, Gabriel told Joseph the first purpose of Jesus' birth, and that is, in verse 21, she will be with son, give birth to a son, and you will have to name him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Saving from sins? Are you saved from your sins? Saved from what? I believe it's saved from God's wrath. And that's a hard word, but Jesus is the one who taught us this. In John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave us one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. People without Christ are in great jeopardy. They're condemned already in the words of Jesus. In Romans, we, we read in Romans 5, 6-11, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Look at verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This is hard to take, isn't it? That you're saved from God's... Is God a wrathful God? It sounds like it to me. Um, for if we were... God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Not only this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have been received reconciliation. Reading Jesus' words, reading the words of Romans, and other passages like Ephesians, people without Christ are now object of God's wrath. That Strikes me hard, does it not you? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, is a death sentence. How can this be? When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they defied God. They rebelled against God. And they didn't believe God. And that life-giving uh, fellowship with God was cut, severed. That fellowship was broken. Indeed, they believe the serpent's lie that if you eat this fruit, you won't really die. Trust yourself. And they did, and they did die. And like one drop of black ink in crystal clear water, blackens all of that water. So Adam and Eve's sin has darkened our human nature. We have a self-will. We're selfish by nature and by choice. That's Adam's blessing to us. And even from their firstborn son, there was violence. Cain killed Abel. And so our world has been marked and ruined by violence and death ever since. And Adam and Eve died, and Cain and Abel died, and people die. Now, as I watch the news, I'm thinking, aren't there any consequences for people's behavior? Don't you want justice? 
Yes, I know we love these people, but don't they deserve justice and consequences for the wrong they've done, right? I feel that way. In fact, I look at movie titles and they're all about revenge, getting justice. Well, God is not into the business of revenge. Vengeance of mine says the Lord, but he's in the, his vengeance is just. It's not overdone. It's, it's what he does. It's his perfect justice. And when people go to court, they tell their story. Eyewitnesses tell their story. The people tell their story, what's going on. But God knows all about me and all about you, and there's no place to hide. He knows every person's life and their sin and that we are a rebellious lot and that rebellion deserves consequences, justice. There is a message by Pastor Jonathan Edwards back in 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. Jonathan Edwards was a terrific pastor, but also a great philosopher. And he preached this message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, one of the most famous sermons in Christian history. Have you ever read it? Well, he preached it several times, but on that day, on July the 8th, 1741, God used that message to produce powerful conviction and repentance of all who heard it. And that's what ignited the first great awakening, the great revival in America, that people realized that there were consequences for their sin, and in being in the hands of an angry God, they needed to repent. Now, this is a fire and brimstone message, but it was the trigger that brought about the change in America, which resulted in the Declaration of Independence in our nation. God, when he moves in a country, he calls people to repentance for their sin and guilt, Christians as well. And he is angry. He is angry that he's been disobeyed. He's provided a solution. But until you realize that you stand in God's presence without his protection of, God, of Jesus' blood, you are condemned already, Jesus said. The purpose of Jesus' birth was to save us until we realize that God will someday execute his perfect justice and keep on thinking that we just keep on disobeying God without consequences. Why does anybody need to be saved? Let's not miss the main event here. Let's not be distracted by the parade. Jesus has come to save sinners People you know without God stand condemned already. Now, Gabriel tells Mary a second purpose for Jesus' birth. Look at verse 32. Jesus came to rule the world. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Not just to save the world, not just to save sinners, but to salvage this broken world, to bring paradise lost to paradise regained, from, from Genesis to Revelation to restore this broken world. He would call the Son of the Most High. The first time we read about the Most High is in Genesis 14 when Abram made a, a tenth a, a, to offering to the prince of Melchizedek more than 4,000 years ago. 
And this title, Most High, Elion, is reserved for the sovereign creator of the universe, the one who controls the universe, the supreme being who is in charge of all there is, who puts kings and presidents in place and takes them down like he did for Israel. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar and he took down King Nebuchadnezzar. He raised up the Assyrians. He raised up the Medes and the Persian Empire, King Cyrus, all presidents, all czars, all emirates, all dynasties, all nations, America and China and Russia are in God's hands and the empires like the Inca, Mayan and Ming dynasties have been in power because God and his most high God is the one who created the nations for his purposes. Now Pilate, who was the Roman governor, thought he held Jesus' faith in his hands. He told Jesus, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Now listen to what Jesus said in John 10, 11. You have no power over me if it were not given to me from above. America has no power unless God gives it to us. China has no power unless God in his sovereignty is orchestrating the nations for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was resurrected, he was spent 40 days on the planet before he ascended into heaven. And his final words, we call it the Great Commission, begins with this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus' father-son relationship with the Most High is most important because Jesus, this Jesus born in Nazareth, will rule the world, as we're saying about Mary. Don't you know that? And the angel goes on to tell Mary that the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. This is all about Israel, the king of Israel. And this promise is called the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. For thousands of years, Jews have hoped for this Messiah to come and rule the world. That's their messianic hope. Now, David's son, King Solomon, did not fulfill that covenant, right? They're still looking for him. Uh, 2 Samuel talks about it. Isaiah talks about it. Only Jesus the Christ will sit on David's throne forever. Now, what does that mean? Someday in Jerusalem, the throne of David, Jesus will come and rule this planet from that spot. We talked about it last week when we lit the first candle. Isaiah 9, 6 7, 4, To us a child is born, to us a son has been given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and the peace there shall be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish that. What's the future of our world? What's the Bible say? Someday, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to rule this planet from the throne of his father, David. That's the millennium. Don't miss the main event. He is coming back. That's what I see. We need to understand the two purposes of Jesus' birth, to save sinners from God's wrath 
And secondly, to come and rule the world and salvage it to be what he first intended it to be. And the second part that I see, what must he do? We need to take part in God's purpose for Jesus' birth. Participate, engage, embrace, act upon. I chose the phrase, take part in his purposes. And that's what Mary did in verses 34 to 38. And she did it, first of all, she asked the right question. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? How? Not what? Not why? I don't understand. She didn't understand the prophecy of Messiah, David's son. She wanted to know how she, as a virgin, would have a child, how that would be accomplished. Her question was about her virginity, not about Gabriel's revelation. I'd like you to compare the two times Gabriel spoke there, first with Zechariah in chapter 1 and now with Mary. Zechariah asked the wrong question. He asked, how can I be certain of this? He doubted the revelation. Mary believed the revelation. Mary placed her faith in prophetic scripture, but Zechariah doubted prophetic scripture. Every word that God spoke will come true. She asked only one question, the right question. How will this be? And church family, as we think about reaching into the world with the gospel and who we are and our limitations, that God wants us to make disciples. The question is not why, but how. How can we as a church do that? That's the question you need to ask the Lord yourself. How will this be? That's the kind of worshipers that God seeks. Those who respond to the truth in spirit and in truth. God has given us the revelation and let's worship him in truth and spirit. Or how will this be? I like to phrase it this way. And my part is, my part as a member of Hillsborough First Baptist Church is, how will this be for us to make disciples? How will this be that we can participate in the Jesus' purpose of his birth to save sinners? How will this be that we shall cause people to look forward to, the, to get a true global worldview of what's going to happen in this world? How will this, how can I be a part of this? Ask the right question and then listen to God's word for his purpose. Verses 25 to 28. So what was God's purpose for Mary? Verse 35. This is the only explanation of the virgin birth in the Bible. And this is so simple to understand, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born in you will be called the Son of God. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I understand that. How could I have been so dense? Just like that. 700 years before the prophecy of the virgin birth was given and people debate that in Isaiah 7 14 a virgin shall conceive they say that's the word Alma or our young maiden in fact in Isaiah 7 it was talking about a young maiden before she could have a baby this is going to happen to Israel but the fulfillment of this completely is that Mary would give birth to a son and you will call him God with us how this is, there's only, this is the only explanation. I just want to try to walk through this a little bit 
And verse 35 is just such a brief statement, like this should be enough. I guess it is. <laughs> Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, he takes the initiative with Mary. He takes the responsibility of this happening. And not just to come to you, but to, not as he did in Old Testament times, but this special relationship of being over you. Like, well, people in the Old Testament experienced when the Holy Spirit came, like David and Saul and Samson. They had unusual abilities to accomplish a special purpose, but this goes further than that. He will overshadow you. A cloud over you, literally. The bright cloud of the transfiguration that enveloped in a brace of brilliancy. You know, Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration. The cloud was an indicator of God's presence. In the, in the wilderness, there was God's cloud. We see that. When he went up into the clouds into heaven, it's a sign of his presence. So somehow, Holy Spirit enfolded him with this cloud of brilliance. And next thing you know, a miracle happens. She is impregnated because he, Jesus, does not have the sin nature that we're born with. He's the perfect Lamb of God. So what was her response? Mary, did you know? Well, I'm carrying God in my womb. I'm, I'm to nurse this baby at my breast. I'm to change his diapers. I'm to feed him. I'm to nurture him. And then when he goes forward, I'm to follow him. What an example of a godly mother. That was Mary's purpose, to be God's agent for Jesus to make his presence into this planet as Emmanuel. And then verse 36, what was God's purpose for Elizabeth? Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is barren, who is said to be barren, is in her sixth month. So when Mary heard Gabriel, it was six months into her Elizabeth's pregnancy. Mary, you're not alone. God has been working behind the scenes for at least six months, <laughs> and God is on the move. I want to show you, look at your older relative. It was impossible to be pregnant. Now she is. This is a miracle. God's been working, and he's working in you now. Her purpose, Elizabeth, was to encourage Mary to praise her. We'll talk about that more next week. And then the question for us, what's God's purpose for you in all this? How many times have you heard this story? What's God's purpose for you that perhaps you think is impossible? Verse 37 goes, for nothing is impossible with God. That's encouraging to me. <laughs> what about you? Literally, it's... Uh, Every word, rhema is the word, specific statement, not logos, the whole text, but every specific word will not be impossible. When God speaks a word in the scriptures, he will bring it to pass. When he calls you a new creature in Christ, he is bringing it to pass. When he says, you shall be my witnesses, he will arrange opportunities and train you to, to share your faith with others. To see other people born again, every word with God is not impossible. God speaks, and the universe, the multiverse is created. God speaks, and Elizabeth is pregnant. God speaks, and the God-man is conceived in a virgin. God speaks, 
and his son comes to save the world and to rule the world. God speaks and will accomplish every detail of his prophetic word, every detail. God speaks of your eternal salvation, and he who called you is faithful. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Father, how can I be a part? You know all the things I've got going on in my life. You know my situations, my health, the people I know. Pray. Pray. Lord, draw them to salvation. That's what we're going to put the focus on prayer this coming year as a gathered church to come and pour out our hearts. Lord, show us how to do what is impossible because we cannot do this in our own strength, in our own planning. We need you to show us and we will follow you. How will this be accomplished? With God, nothing is impossible. You ask him the right question, you see his purposes, and then the third thing we do in participating in his plan is to give God the right answer. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Every year you hear this statement. As you look at your life and his call in your life, would you respond by saying, I am the Lord's servant. Speak to me, Lord. I am listening. Your servant is listening. Be it unto me as you have said. What do you want in my life? What is your purpose for my life? Speak and I will follow you. That's prayer. And as you pray, belief is just not knowing enough to give the right answer. It's living the right answer, acting on what you know like Mary did. Mary gave the right answer and committed herself to live by that answer. I'm going to be pregnant. I'm going to take the consequences of being an unwed mother, and I know God's going to take care of me and my child, that this there is a baby's going to be born. He's going to rule the world. He's going to save sinners. I will take whatever punishment or persecution that may come upon me, whatever responsibility that is. Lord, speak. Be it unto me as you have said. That kind of Cry at Christmas is the main event for Christmas. For salvation, the Lord ruling in your life. In accepting a God-sized assignment, we could not make it happen. But we do what God asks us. We surrender to Him. Take my hardening of the categories. Take my preferences. Take my fears. Take my understanding of we can't do this. And Lord, what do you have in mind for us? What do you want Hillsborough First Baptist to be through us? I'm look, I am so excited to see so many wonderful folks in this church who are so willing to serve and do and use your spiritual gifts and serve. Now let's just focus that together and coordinate it. I've been told, and I confirmed this with Al Caravone, who worked with lasers. You know it takes just as much energy to light one light bulb like this that it does to develop a laser beam that can pierce iron. You know the difference between that one amount of energy? It comes in a concentrated, focused pulse. And that's what we're asking the Lord to do. Break through, Lord. Break through my fears. Break through all that I, I don't want to. Break through, Lord, and speak to me. Would you, would you ask him to do that? You know, our belief is just not what we think and say. 
you know, I read a book, therefore I've done it. No, that's, you know, how many of us have learned to swim? Did you learn to swim by watching it on YouTube? Or did you learn to swim by getting in the water and swimming? Just because you've got a degree in swimming and you watched all the books and read all the YouTube doesn't make you a swimmer. Just like someone who buys all the fishing equipment from wherever they buy it. I'm not telling you my place. And I've got all these tools. I never go fishing. Am I a fisherman or not? Just like sailing a boat. I learned to sail a boat when I was becoming a camp director. I had to get out there in the water and learn how to do this kind of stuff. I'm not sure I'm good at it anymore, but just reading about it, you had to be there to do it. The same with our faith that we have. How do we follow him? By acting. So many of us and so many people are dying of thirst, although they know that Jesus is the water of life. Here's one story that I saw once. A man dying of thirst was trying to cross the desert when he spotted a hand pump near a large rock. Can you imagine crawling through the Sierra, dying or whips white, and you see a water pump? It had no water to prime the pump, but he noticed a small can of water with a note attached to it, and it said, and here's water, and you're dying of thirst, and it says, there's enough water in this cup to prime the pump, but if you drink it first, there won't be. Pour all the water in the top of the pump and, and pump the handle quickly, and you'll have all the water you need to drink, and then refill the cup for the next person when they read this note. What would the dying man do? There's the message. This is how you drink all the water you want, but here's the water. Are you going to believe the message or not? Are you going to follow the instructions to prime the pump so others can have the water? Or are you going to just take it for yourself and die of thirst? That's what true faith does. It knows the message, and it acts on the message. Lord, speak, your servant hears. And you receive his, his water. So the difference that this morning might make in your life as you've studied and heard about Mary again and again and again, her dilemma, what does it mean in this room right now, in your age and stage? Ask him the right question and give him the right answer. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Before the worship team comes up, I just want to do that right now. Just bow your heads with me. And there may be people in this room and online by your heads as well. And we've talked about John 3.16 and John 3.17 and John 3.18 and about the wrath being condemned already. Here's how you place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Talk to Him. Say, Lord, I want to believe this. I place my eternal destiny in what Jesus did on the cross for me. That he died in my place for the guilt of my sin and has rescued me from the wrath that I deserve. Save me, Lord. Right where you're sitting, online, right here, and ask Jesus to save you. The Bible says in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, to those he gave the right to become the children of God, and when you're in his household, you're out of his wrath. So right now, 
I'm having, asking you to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. And I'm also asking all those who have placed their faith in Christ that there's more. There's, there's, a, there's a life that waits us that is abundant and full, and, and it's His blessing upon us, and we must follow Him. We say, Lord, what do you want me to do next? Show me how to follow you. And then listen, and then follow Him. Yes, God will never ask us what he did of Mary. The virgin birth happens only once. But he has a desire for us to know him and place our faith in him. Or else you might hear your father say, son, you didn't see the circus. All you saw was the parade. This Christmas, let's make sure that we are in his very midst. See, in Jesus' name we pray. His name is Jesus at the name of Jesus, therefore, God exalted him above the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the difference. Someday we're going to bow our knees and say, Jesus, you are Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. We come to honor the one who came to save us, that we come to the table this morning. And before we do that, there's a, there's a Bible verse, two verses that I think are really Christmas verses that talk about communion. In Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O Lord. Now, that's a Christmas verse. And we celebrate that this morning at this table. He's come into the world. So let's prepare our hearts for communion as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table this morning, these elements represent a picture of your son, his body, his death, his burial, his resurrection physically ascended into heaven. And it's your gift to us and we receive him as our Savior and we celebrate him now as our Lord and Savior at this table. Honor your name through this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.